We praise you. We thank you for your love, your grace, your sacrifice for us on the cross that you rose from the dead. And God, we thank you that where our sin, even though it's great, abounds, that your grace abounds even more. And I pray that your grace would abound in our lives this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, as you're seated along, go ahead and be seated along the lines of honoring people. Um, I'm going to embarrass you again, guys. So uh, this is Kennedy. This is uh, Isaiah. This, they got uh, married just a little bit over two weeks ago. So uh, why don't we congratulate them this morning? All right. And let's uh, take our Bibles and go to the book of Lamentations in the Old Testament. It's a fairly short book after the really long book of uh, Jeremiah. And uh, we're going to Take about five weeks and walk through the five chapters of it. We're calling the series Beauty Will Rise, and uh, I want the series to be encouraging. And I uh, just want to start with this statement. I, I don't think anybody will argue with me on this statement this morning. Wherever you're coming from today, Christian or not, uh, you know, uh, I think you can agree with this statement that life is hard. Life is hard often very painful. Um, I mean, anybody really want to dispute that today? I mean, I think if you can dispute that, I would really encourage you to praise God because you're richly blessed or you're extremely young. <laughs> and I don't want to be the cold water brigade, but if your day's coming. Because there is a reality that we're either in a storm, we've come out of a storm, or at some point we're headed into a storm. I mean, there's just some reality to that. You know, really what I'm saying is that suffering is an unfortunate but all common, too common reality in our lives. And really, over the course of, of this series, suffering is what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about suffering and sin, suffering and sorrow, uh, suffering and hope. Suffering and sovereignty and, and suffering and restoration. And today we're going to talk about suffering and sin. And the reason we're going to start with that is it's really because where this book starts. Really, a lot of this book are these vivid pictures of judgment. And we're not going to go through every verse because if we did, you'd leave every Sunday being just absolutely depressed. I would encourage you to, to read the book, but as you read the book, it sounds a lot like stories we hear out of Ukraine, you know, of citizens. Uh, being killed, uh, you know, people starving in some places as cities have been sieged. Uh, there's been multiple media reports of the Russians using rape as an instrument of war. And, and you see all of these kind of things uh, that are going on in the book of Lamentations, which goes all the way back to uh, the 500s B.C. as the Babylonians uh, captured Jerusalem and enslaved as they captured uh, God's people, uh, the, the nation of Israel. But uh, really, there's something behind this, and that is that God had had Jeremiah pro prophesied to the nation for years, and he had warned them that they needed to repent. He had warned them that judgment was coming, and, and they wouldn't listen. And so, again, there is a reality that sin leads to suffering. Now, and we'll get into this a little bit more in, in, as, as we go through this. I'm not saying, like, if you're suffering today, it's necessarily directly because of your sin. I'm not saying that's the only reason. But I'm saying the Bible teaches us that God made everything in the world good, 
and then sin came into the world through Adam and Eve. We've all sinned since then, and the world has been in corruption and decay because of that. So indirectly, there would be no suffering if there wasn't sin. But even beyond that, sometimes, not in every case, but sometimes we do suffer because of our sin. Now, I understand that this is maybe not the most popular or the appeasing kind of message to share. You know, as a society, I don't know that we talk a whole lot about sin anymore. Now, sometimes something horrific like the shooting in Buffalo this weekend will happen, and you'll hear you know, the media talking about, you know, this is evil and that kind of thing, which it, it, it surely is. But just in day-to-day life, I'm not sure how much we call uh, sin, sin. In fact, there's a psychiatrist by the name of Dr. Carl Menninger who almost 50 years ago in 1973 wrote a book called Whatever Became of Sin. And even all the way back then, he was uh, the, basically the premise of, of the book is, is that the word and the concept of sin has disappeared uh, from our society. And he, he basically said that we're, really we've started to call things either crime and which what he points out is, I mean, he's not saying crime isn't a, a real thing, but he's saying, you know, a crime is, well, let, let's say I've hit Eddie, I assaulted him. That's a crime against Eddie, but it's also a sin against God. And we've lost the, we may have the person-to-person aspect of wrongdoing, but that we've lost the us-to-God aspect of wrongdoing. Or he says, it maybe it's not called crime, it's maybe more about symptoms. It's about outward things. It's about heredity and environment and, and childhood experiences and those kind of things. And not saying those aren't a factor in our lives, but those are not the ultimate reason or an excuse for why we do what we do. I believe uh, Adrian Rogers, uh, the late great preacher, uh, was right when he said the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. So, again, I I want this to be encouraging, but the reality is if we're going to deal with with suffering in our lives and, and, and cope with it and overcome it and Ultimately, if we're not going to be suffering eternally, we need to see and deal with the connection between sin and suffering. We need to see that it's often a root issue. Now, I mean, let, let's be honest. Uh, we, you know, we, we go to the, 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 the doctor. We want the symptoms. We want to feel better, right? We want the symptoms to be dealt with. I mean, I remember one time having, me, having a doctor tell me, I don't care about your symptoms. And it made me mad in the moment because I was like, I want to feel better. But really what he was saying is I want to get to the root of the issue. And so, again, sometimes if the root of the issue of our suffering is sin, to really deal with suffering in those cases, we have to get to the root, which is sin. It's kind of like this. Last summer in July, you know, we went, a few of us went on a trip to Honduras. And like the day before we left, I started having this problem with my foot out of the blue. And, and I'd like mowed the day before, and I thought, oh, I must have twisted my ankle or something like that. And, you know, when you're middle-aged, stuff will start hurting two days later after you did it out of the blue. And you're like, how, where did this come from? How, how did this happen? 
some of you are looking very confused right now, but you'll get there someday. Just uh, give it a few years. I thought, I saw, you know, twisted my ankle or whatever, and, uh, you know, I had lots of sprained ankles playing basketball growing up, and so, you know, a little sensitive to that anyway, I guess. But, like, we're, you know, we're in Honduras for a week, and it's not getting better. And finally, you know, we, we get back, and after I've been home a, a, a little bit, I'm like, you know, something's wrong here, something's going on, this is weird. You know, you sprain your ankle, you ice and whatever, it gets better in a little bit of time. This wasn't happening, so I go to the doctor. And so uh, what I learned is, uh, you know, just out of the blue, that uh, uh, I had gout. Uh, I was having a, a flare-up of gout, which, you know, the famous preacher Charles Spurgeon had terrible problems with gout. I wish if you're going to have gout, I could preach like Spurgeon along with it, but apparently that doesn't come with it. But um, apparently gout is caused by high uric acid, and so, like, they want to put me on medicine. I didn't want to go on medicine. I wanted to find the cause for it and, you know, tried some natural stuff, and I, I didn't have any more flare-ups, and, you know, they kept checking it. The uric acid's still high, and so, like, in March, which, I don't know, that's what, like, seven, eight months after this, uh, my doctor finally persuaded me to go on some medicine for it, um, because he said, like, even if you're not having the flare-ups, if you have this problem, it's going to cause problems in your joints, and sometimes people end up with having to have something replaced because, uh, like a knee replacement or whatever, because they didn't deal with this root problem. So he finally convinced me, and uh, he told me uh, up front that usually when you go on the medicine uh, to deal with the problem, it actually triggers a gout flare-up uh, when you first start it. So I was kind of expecting that, and that could be extremely painful. So that happened the first week I went on it, and I'm like, okay, that's done with. Hopefully this is working or whatever. Well, then about five weeks later, I had two more. And by the third one, I'm, I'm getting pretty frustrated here because, like, I'm fine without taking the medicine. Uh, but now I'm on the medicine, and it's causing me uh, problems, and I'm hurting, and I'm limping, and, and, and whatnot. I'm like, but, you know, you need to deal with it. You need to get to the root of it. And so that's kind of what this message is going to be like today. It may cause you some pain in the moment to hopefully get to the root of the problem in our lives. All right, so this is just the big idea that I want to give you. It's very simple. It's four words. Sin leads to suffering. Sin leads to suffering. I believe that's what we're going to see in God's Word today. Sin leads to suffering. And so if you have this conviction... It's going to shape how you live. It's going to shape how you deal with suffering. Now, there's some things that go into this. You know, do you believe suffering's a reality? Do you believe there is such a thing as sin? A lot of people don't. I mean, you know, we live in a society in which the Enlightenment view that we're naturally good, corrupted by external factors, has, uh, has prevailed. And so I understand in talking about sin, I'm outside the mainstream, but, you know, the Bible is my source of authority. So do you believe, uh, you know, that sin is a real thing? Do you believe there's a connection uh, between sin and, and, and suffering? And, and understand, again, I'm not saying because I, I think, you know, people used to be this way a lot. Like if something's wrong in your life, it's like you must have sinned. What would you do to cause this? And again, I'm not saying that's always the case, but I think on the other hand, and I think I'm guilty of this sometimes, we can go so far overboard in the other direction of trying to be compassionate and, and never talk about sin, and we hurt people because, again, if the root cause is things that we're doing or not doing or decisions that we're making and we're experiencing the consequences, the only way to fix the result is to change the root, root fruit. 
And, and it's just like, you know, if you really want to fix a medical problem, you can take something maybe that makes you feel better and mask it, which is what we do with suffering a lot of times in our lives. We're, we're trying to cover it up, mask it. We're just trying to feel better. But are we really getting to the root of the problem? Old Puritan preacher by the name of John Owen famously said, Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. And, and, and there's, there's a lot of truth to that. So, do just a little bit of background work since this is the, the, the first week in this message, okay? So, the book of Lamentations, some people dispute this. I think it was written by Jeremiah. It's really, it's a funeral dirge is what it is. Um, it, it's, uh, it's five chapters. Four of the chapters have 22 verses. Anybody know how many letters are in the Hebrew alphabet? 22. <laughs> yeah, the tw- there's 22. And, and the first four chapters are actually acrostic poems with each verse starting with the letter of the Hebrew alphabet. In chapter 3, it's longer. It's 66 verses. But it's just, uh, it's just the way they do the verses is different. It's really the same kind of uh, thing. But it, it's about the judgment of God. It's about... Uh, you know, the things that they were experiencing at the hand of the Babylonians as God removed his protection from them because of their sin. Again, it's very graphic. It, it, they're experiencing some horrendous things, okay? So, uh, just a little background. The problem, what was the problem? Well, Jeremiah 2, 11 through 13 says, Has a nation changed its gods, which are not gods? But my people have changed their glory for what does not profit. Be astonished, O heavens, at this, and be horribly horribly afraid. Be very desolate, says the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. So the problem was they rejected God, they become uh, idolaters, and, and God was judging them for that. And so he gave them a warning, and he said over and over again, one example would be chapter 29, uh, verse 4, that if, if you don't repent, you're going to be carried away captive. The Babylonians are going to take you over, and uh, you know that's what happened uh, is expressed in Jeremiah 29, 4. But there's a promise. Jeremiah 29, 10 says, For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I, I will visit you and perform my good word towards you and cause you to return to this place. So he's saying, you know, I'm warning you, you need to repent, you need to stop your idolatry, you need to put me first. Uh, If you don't repent, then I'm going to deal with your sin, I'm going to judge you, I'm going to use the Babylonians, they're going to overtake you. And, but it's not going to last forever, it's only going to last for 70 years. And so that's the promise, that's the hope uh, of restoration, even out of uh, this exile. But then, this is how it actually happened historically speaking. It must be very important because it's recorded four different places in the Old Testament. Here's an example, 2 Chronicles uh, 36, starting in verse 11. It says, Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord his God and did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. 
uh, he also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear an oath by God, but he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord God of Israel. Moreover, all the leaders of the priests and the people transgressed more and more according to all the abominations of the nations and defiled the house of the Lord, the temple, which he had consecrated in uh, Jerusalem. If I could just interject here, if, if you read Leviticus chapter 26 in the list of sins and punishments that were given there in the law, and you kind of, if you could put reading Jeremiah and Lamentations alongside that, what you would find is, is that Jeremiah and Lamentations, particularly Lamentations, are the fulfillment of what God had said to them, had said to his people in Leviticus chapter 26, that would happen if you disobey me. So that's in the background of this as well. So verse 15, says, The Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them by his messengers, rising up early and sending them, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. In other words, he wanted them to repent. But, you know, God's holy. He's got to uphold his word. And if they won't listen, uh, listen, remember this. Don't confuse God's permission with God's patience. God is patient. God is patient. Often he'll give us chances, many chances. There's no guarantee of that. But there can come a point where God says, enough is enough. Verse 16, it says, they mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets. And then notice the last part of the verse, key, until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, till there was no remedy. There can come a time when God says, enough is enough. Listen, if you're not a Christian, and, and, and God's been convicting you of your sins, and, and, and you know that you need to turn to Jesus Christ, there can come a time when God says, no more chances. Enough is enough. There's no more remedy. Listen, you, you, you could have some kind of secret sin in your life that you think that you're getting away with, but sooner or later, everything that's hidden in the dark is going to come into the light. There can come a time when there's no more remedy. There can come a time when we're doing something that destroys our lives. And so it says in verse 17, Therefore he brought against them the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion on young man or virgin, on the aged or the weak. He gave them all into his hand, and all the articles from the house of God, great and small, the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and his, of his leaders, all these he took to Babylon. Then they burned the house of God, broke down the wall of Jerusalem, burned all its palaces with fire, and destroyed all its precious possessions. And those who escaped from the sword he carried away to Babylon, where they became servants to him and his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. As long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Sin leads to suffering. That's what they experienced. Sin leads to suffering. Now again, the caveat is, I'm not saying in every case that we're suffering uh, you know, because of our, of our sin. Sometimes we suffer because of other people's sins. 
Right? If, I mean, if a drunk driver hits you and hurts you in an accident, you're suffering because of that person's sin. If someone's spouse cheats on them, you're suffering because of that person's sin. Sometimes we suffer just because we live in a fallen world. You know, we have health problems because we're in a state of decay. You know, sometimes we suffer because it's the plan of God for our good, for His glory. He's working to refine us, uh, to, to, to grow us, to bring something better. You know, sometimes we can suffer because someone persecutes us for our faith. There's different reasons we suffer, but at the end of the day, in general, there would be no suffering if there were no sin. And sometimes, just like God's people, just like Judah, Jerusalem, in this case, they suffered because of their own sin. We suffer earthly consequences sometimes because of our sin, and if we don't repent and trust Jesus, we'll suffer eternal consequences because of our sin. That's the reality. It's painful, but the issue is, is it true? Because if it's true and it's really the root cause, at least part of the time, if we're going to fix it, we got to get to the roots. Now, in the book of Lamentations, I just want us to read the first few verses just to see what they were actually experiencing. And again, I'd encourage you to read this book for yourself, but let's just read and hear what they experienced, and then we'll... Uh, look at how this applies to us today. So Lamentations 1-1 says, How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow is she who is great among the nations. The princess among the provinces has become a slave. So this great city, uh, God's city in a sense, ha- had become desolate. And um, you know the people have been enslaved. Most of them have been taken away. Uh, to maybe put it in a modern context, think of war in a city that's been bombed out. And something like that is maybe the image that invokes. It says, she weeps bitterly in the night. Her tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort uh, her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. So they're saying, and remember this is Hebrew poetry, weeping bitterly, but there's no comfort. Friends have become enemies. Verse 3, Judah has gone into captivity under affliction and hard servitude. She dwells among the nations. She finds no rest. All her persecutors overtake her in, in, in dire straits. So they've been enslaved. They were in captivity under hard labor. Verse 4, the roads to Zion mourn because no one comes to the set feast. All her gates are desolate. Her priests sigh. Her virgins are afflicted. And she is in bitterness. This is saying the temple have been destroyed. The sacrifices have been stopped. And, uh, you know, we're not Jewish, so we can't even conceive of the grief that this would have been to these people uh, to see uh, this happen. It says, her adversaries have become the master. Her enemies prosper. Why? Because the Lord has afflicted her because of the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone into captivity before the enemy. In this case, at least, sin led to suffering. That's what the text says. It says, the Lord has afflicted her because of the multitude of her transgressions. Verse 6, and from the daughter of Zion, all her splendor is departed. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture, that flee without strength before the pursuer. At least some of her leaders just ran away 
at the approach of the enemy. Now we know that Zedekiah was captured, his eyes were put out, he was in prison, and his sons were killed, but some of the other leaders just ran away. Verse 7, in the days of her affliction and roaming, Jerusalem remembers all her pleasant things that she had in the days of old. When her people fell into the hand of the enemy with no one to help her, the adversaries saw her and mocked at her downfall. So they're being mocked by their enemies, even as they remembered uh, when, when things are, are, were good. And it isn't one way that we suffer because of sin, it's because of regrets. Woulda, coulda, shoulda, right? I wish I hadn't done that. Wish I'd have done this differently. That, that's what they're experiencing. Verse 8 and 9, Jerusalem has sinned gravely, therefore she has become vile. All who honored her despise her because they have seen her nakedness. Yes, she sighs and turns away. Her uncleanness is in her skirts. She did not consider her destiny. Therefore, her collapse was awesome. She had no comforter. O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy is, is exalted. And this is poetically speaking of the shame of sin. Verse 10, the adversary has spread his hand over all her pleasant things, for she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, those whom you commanded not to enter your assembly. And this is speaking of the temple being defiled. And in verse 11, all her people sigh, they seek bread, they have given their valuables for food to restore life. See, O Lord, and consider, for I am, cons- I am scorned. And, and what this is talking about is they were selling things, potentially... Uh, their children into slavery to be able to eat. Or it's possible this could actually be referring to, and if it's not referring to this here, it does explicitly later in the book, that some of them were actually even eating their babies because they were starving. I mean, this is how bad things were. And if you read the whole book, I mean, this is just a sample it's just verse after verse of them lamenting their situation and just the horrors that they're experiencing. Sin leads to suffering. I mean, when God said, enough is enough, there's no more remedy, I'm turning you over to the Babylonians, they did evil, horrible, atrocious things. This is what they experienced. Now, what about us today? He says, is is it the same for us? Do we really suffer because of sin? Well, if the Bible is true, the answer is yes, because what is true is true for all people in all places and all times under all circumstances. That's what it means for something to actually be true. It's not my truth and your truth. It's the truth. And so why do I believe that we suffer because of our sin? I just want to give you three reasons here from the first couple of chapters of the book of Lamentations this morning. And, and this is how I want to try to help us apply it to our lives today. Why do I actually think we would suffer because of our sin? Number one, because God's word is always fulfilled. God's word is always fulfilled. Now, sometimes it takes time. Sometimes we think, man, there is no justice in the world. But I have seen God work things out and bring things to the light and deal with things after years of time. His time frame is different than ours. 
But, but notice what God's Word says here. Again, chapter 1, verse 5. Uh, the Lord has afflicted her because of the multitude of her transgressions. Verse 18, the Lord is righteous, for I rebelled against his commandment. Hear now all peoples, and behold my sorrow. My virgins and my young men have gone into captivity. Chapter 2, verse 17, the Lord has done what he purposed. He has fulfilled his word, which he commanded in days of old. He has thrown down and is not pitied. He has caused an enemy to rejoice over you. Say, well, that was them then, though. But the Bible says this in Romans 1.18. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. God deals with all sin. Not some sin, not everybody else's sin, not the really bad sins, not the things that we think are horrible. All sin as defined by him. Again, God is patient, but don't confuse his patience with his permission. So, what does this look like for us? Well, we need to realize that sin has built-in consequences. The theological term is the consequential wrath of God. God has designed the universe that when we make choices, there are always consequences, whether for good or bad, based on the choice. This is what he said in Jeremiah 2.19. He said, your own wickedness will correct you and your backslidings will rebuke you. Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. And, and, and that is such an obvious universal principle that, um, you know, even other religions, even atheists, many believe in the principle of karma, which isn't exactly the same thing, but it's very similar, right? That what goes around comes around. We reap what we sow. And why is this true? Well, if you go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, the, the first command in the Bible, when God said, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. And you say, well, you know, why would God tell him not to eat that? Because here's the claim. He's creator. We're creature. The, cre the, the creation is created to glorify, to be dependent on, and be submitted to the Creator. So he gave him one command. And basically, more than being about a fruit tree, is basically, trust me and obey me. They believed a lie, tried to live their own way, tried to be their own God, and there's consequences of it until today. Chuck Colson's put it this way, he says, the consequences of sin affect the very order of the universe itself. Most people have a narrow understanding of the term sin. We tend to think it means we've broken a few rules, made a few mistakes, so we apologize and get on with life, right? Wrong. Sin is much more than breaking the rules. God created an intricate, interwoven cosmos, each part depending on the others, all governed by laws of order and harmony. Sin affects every part of that order and harmony, twisting, fracturing, distorting, and corrupting it. He's saying nothing is what it's supposed to be. Something's wrong with everything. That's why we can't avoid suffering. 
because the world is under the curse, the bondage, the decay of sin. That's what Christian theology would teach. And again, you know, different worldviews are going to oppose that. But what corresponds with reality? I think this corresponds with reality. There's something wrong within us, so we mess up the things around us. But the reality is we can't avoid the consequences. But remember, God judges, but at the same time, God saves. He's gracious because, you know, that promise, you eat of this, you're going to die. You know, God didn't eliminate them immediately. They died spiritually. They didn't die physically. He gave them a chance for grace. And understand, you know, when we, the first time we sinned willfully, God had every right to, to send us to hell. The fact that we're not there is grace. Every blessing that we have is grace. Uh, if, if you have been forgiven of your sins through Jesus Christ, that is pure, unadulterated, undeserved grace. We deserve death. The wages of sin is death. But death, Jesus died the death that we deserve so death could die in him and we could experience eternal life through his death, burial, and resurrection. That's the message of Christianity. The message of Christianity is not try harder, do better. It's trust Jesus. Let him forgive you. Let him change you from the inside out. But even that, even if you know, all that's true and you're forgiven and you're going to heaven, that does not erase the earthly consequences of sin because we reap what we sow. We want it to be that way, but it's never that way. I mean, I read a little article about a family, a Protestant family, but uh, they practice Lent, and they were trying to explain to their kids, you know, and it's a chance for uh, talking about repentance, and uh, like, you know, we feel like we should give up something for Lent, and mom and dad are like, well, we're going to give up uh, desserts, and uh, like the, there's three kids, and two older ones said, okay, we'll, we'll do that too. We'll give up desserts uh, during Lent, and they had a six-year-old, and the dad's like, well, what do you think about this? And she was just kind of, uh, you know, quiet, kind of thought about it for a minute, and she's kind of like, I think for Lent, I want to give up consequences. I mean, I think all of us, if we had that opportunity, we would love to give up consequences. But it doesn't work that way. And listen, the lie again is, it'll be different in this case, or it'll be different for me. But it won't be different. Sin leads to suffering. There are built-in consequences to sin. But we also need to see that God disciplines His children now. You know, Romans 8 1 says there's no con condemnation to those in Christ. There's no judgment. There's no, you know, e eternal punishment for those who are in Christ. But Scripture also tells us, uh, Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 5, says, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. And in a sense, you know, God spanks his children. And, you know, sometimes people be like, and it seems like non-Christians are doing better uh, than Christians. Or it looks like these people are getting away with this. I, you know, I'm trying to do the right thing and my life's so rough. And this person never does the right thing. And it looks like everything's so great. Can I just tell you what Scripture teaches us is their day's coming. Their day's coming. God is being patient with them, giving them a chance to repent. But, you know, if we're really a Christian, we have the Holy Spirit on the inside of us who convicts us when we sin. But if we don't listen, God's going to do something to get our attention because, you know, that's the whole purpose of discipline. 
you know what the Bible teaches us about discipline, and I understand in uh, you know, 2022 this is a controversial statement, but it's not been for most of humanity. The idea of discipline is causing a little bit of pain now to save from greater pain later. And that's what God does with his children. You know, I, I remember the worst spanking I ever got in my life. Um, I deserved it. I threw a little, I threw a toy truck at my brother. Okay, but this was not one of these plastic garbage things, toys that kids have today. This was a Tonka truck. <laughs> it was like metal, and that it was heavy. And I just thank God in hindsight that it didn't hit him because it might have killed him. Uh, I mean, and I deserved that spanking, and I never threw any trucks at anybody after that anymore. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it set me on the straight and narrow. And that's what God does when he disciplines us. So God disciplines his children now. But, but you need to know also that if you choose to your sin over Jesus and his sacrifice, if you reject him, that God judges those who reject him eternally. John 3.36 says, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. It means remains on him. Jesus said, Matthew 25.46, These will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. If heaven's eternal, hell's eternal. That's what he's saying. So there's built-in consequences to sin. God always fulfills his word. Again, he's gracious. If you come to him, uh, you know, Jesus paid for your sins, he'll forgive you. But we have to turn to him. Second, God's nature demands that he judge sin. In chapter 1, verse 18, it says, The Lord is righteous, for I rebelled against his commandment. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, uh, like it, it starts saying, the Lord has covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud in his anger. And he keeps talking about his uh, anger. And I understand sometimes people, you know, they don't like that picture of God. But the question is, who is God really, not who we want him to be? But, but I have trouble getting that. Because would you really want a God that is passive? When people sin against him and when people sin against each other? Would you really want a God that's ambivalent to war and, and, and greed and murder and, and, and rape and, and abuse? Would, would you really want a God where there's no justice? I mean, and to me, and I know some people would disagree with this, but one of the strongest reasons to believe in God is that the Bible claims that He is a just God. And I think this is such a wrong, strong reason to believe in God, number one, because, um, you know, where else, if there is no God and we have no soul, I mean, if we're all just a bunch of atheists, what philosophical basis is there, if we don't have a soul, to even talk about 
evil and good and right and wrong and justice and injustice. I mean, if we're just, uh, you know, the product of random chance, time, and evolutionary processes, if we're just highly evolved animals, why would we even be having these discussions? I think that an atheist has to borrow Christian categories even to begin to talk about justice. I mean, the animals aren't sitting around at your house today and debating justice and injustice in the world. It points to us being made. Our desire, our craving for justice points to us being made in the image of a just God. But I would also argue if there's no God and no judgment and no eternity, there is no hope for justice. Because it ain't happening in the world. Right? People get by with stuff all the time. You know, some things aren't going to be set right until... We stand before the throne of God. So I would say God's holy nature that is zealous for his own glory and loves others demands that he deal with sin. Demands that there be consequences to sin. But again, here's the deal. You know, I think most of you would be with me in saying there, there needs to be justice for abusers and rapists and murderers and dictators and, you know, the really bad stuff, right? We're, we're all on board with that. Yeah, let's get them, God. Set it right. Remember Romans 1.18? Judgment of God is against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. And that's my unrighteousness. In my ungodliness, in your unrighteousness, in your ungodliness. Because think about it. Could a judge ever be just if he or she selectively decides when to apply the law and when to administer consequences required by the law? If God always fulfills his word, his righteous nature would demand that he does what he says in his word, which says the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. But number three, and I think this is going to lead to the good news where we'll end this morning. God's son, Jesus, suffering for our sins is the ultimate proof that sin brings suffering. And, and, and this is what I'm saying. If Jesus had to die for us to be forgiven of our sins, if he had to suffer in our place, if that's what it took, which is the gospel, the core, the heart of the Christian faith, it means that sin is that bad and God is that holy. Now, you say, you know, where do you get Jesus in the book of Lamentations? I mean, this Hebrew acrostic poem about suffering. Well, remember, you know, Dr. Aiken, when he was here in March, you know, talked about this, um, that all the Bible's about Jesus, and that's not his concept, that's Jesus' concept. Remember Jesus, Luke 24? Everything in the scripture, you know, and he was talking about the Old Testament. He said, the prophets, the Psalms, uh, the law, you know, everything is about me including the book of Lamentations. You say, how does the book of Lamentations point us 
to Jesus. Well, I want you to think about it this way, and, it, and we'll hit this from some different angles every week as we go through the book. But Exodus 4.22, God said this. He said, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So his relationship to Israel is a picture of his relationship to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in a sense, Jesus, in his life, death, and resurrection, fulfilled and recounted the history of the nation of Israel. And so when Jesus came and he went to the cross and he bore our sins, he was being punished in our place for sin like the nation of Israel was punished for sin. In a sense, they were exiled on the cross. Jesus was exiled from fellowship with his father temporarily, but he was restored like they were restored 70 years later. He was restored three days later and vindicated by the resurrection. If you remember on the cross, Jesus cried out. It's what's called the cry of dereliction. He was quoting Psalm 22.1, which says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was forsaken. The wrath of God was poured out out on him. He wasn't treated like the perfect son of God at that moment. He was treated like one of us, a, a sinner. Uh, you know, God turned away from him. Their fellowship was broken as God poured out the curse of sin, poured out his wrath on Jesus as Jesus paid the price of death that we owe God for our sins. But later in that psalm, uh, you see Jesus vindicated and Hebrews chapter 5 explains that he was vindicated through the resurrection. So the point is this. This, the answer to sin and then therefore the answer to suffering is ultimately the cross of Jesus Christ who was punished in our place, who rose from the dead, he was exiled, he was restored. So we who have been exiled, who have been separated from God by our sin, now can be restored to a relationship with God through Jesus and only through Jesus and only through what he did on the cross. See, the suffering of Jesus provides deliverance from sin and therefore eternal suffering. But I think in the suffering of Jesus, there's also something of an answer to the mystery of suffering. Because when you think about it, I mean, any rational thinking human being is going to have questions about suffering. Particularly if you believe in God, God, you know, Why? you allow this to happen? Or in the words of the psalmist, how long, O Lord? Why is the world this way? Why is my life this way? We all think about this sometimes. And while, you know, some people turn away from the Christian faith because of that, to me, only Christianity actually provides an answer to it. I've preached on that in the past. If you've got questions, I can refer to you to that. But ultimately, I think the answer is the cross because it means that God suffered with us that God suffered for us, that he understands our suffering, that he can give us peace in our suffering, he can give us eternal deliverance uh, from our suffering, that someday there's no more sin or sickness or sorrow or suffering or death for those who are in Christ. But he, he did this because he didn't deserve to suffer, yet he suffered in our place. You know, a lot of times people ask the question, why do bad things happen to good people? I love Craig Rochelle's answer to the question. He, he says, a bad thing is 
has happened to a good person only once in human history. And he signed up for it because Jesus is the only good person who's ever lived. So he's the only good person who's ever had bad things happen to him. And the reason he had bad things happen to him is because he loved us so much that he chose to leave heaven and come to earth and be betrayed and be tortured and suffer and die in our place. That is the love of God. And that's why where sin abounds and it does abound and it does lead to suffering that God's grace abounds more than our sin. There's grace for you today at the cross of Jesus Christ. He wants you to experience that. Well, how do you experience it? Well, it starts with acknowledging that we're sinful and deserving of judgment. You know, it's stopping blaming everybody else. That's part of what they were doing. It's stopping, you know, another problem they had, you know, Jeremiah 2, uh, 14, he said, or I'm sorry, Lamentations 2, 14, your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not uncovered your iniquity to bring back your captives, but have envisioned for you false prophecies and delusions. A lot of times what people do today is they just want somebody to tickle their ears. Right? Make me feel better. To deal with the symptoms instead of the root. But sometimes we need some preachers like my doctor that made me bad when he said, I don't care about your symptoms. And we need to get to the root of the issue. Adrian Rogers said, it's better to speak the truth that hurts than and heals than falsehood that comforts and then kills. And the truth is we're sinners. We're dead in trespasses and sins apart from Jesus Christ. There's consequences to our actions. Sin leads suffering, but there's hope. You see, uh, you know, to you've got to be convinced that you need the cure to take the cure. And, and this is the disease, and the cure is the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Son of God. He died for you. He rose from the dead. And if you'll admit that you're a sinner that your, your sin separates you from God, that, that, that you're lost and hopeless spiritually on your own, that you're, you're headed for eternal separation from God. And there's, you can't fix yourself. But if you'll see that for by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. If you'll receive that gift, if you'll believe what Jesus said when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And come to God through Christ, turning from your sin, trusting him, receiving him, asking his forgiveness. He'll forgive you, cleanse you, make you new, make you a child of God, and make you right with him forever. So my question is, has you, have you come to that place in your life? You've been honest about your sin, your need for a Savior, and you're entirely dependent upon Jesus as that Savior for your salvation. Not, tr- you're not you trying to earn it, not you adding to it, but you trusting Jesus. Listen, if you're a Christian, there's no condemnation, but there's earthly consequences. There's discipline. There's built-in consequences. Listen, if we're harboring sin in our lives, if we're doing our own thing, if we're running from God, living in disobedience, if we're hiding something, some secret sin we're thinking we're getting away with, sin leads to suffering. 
What's whispered in the ear will be shouted from the rooftops. That's what Jesus said. It's going to come out. Just go ahead and bring it out now. Bring it to the Lord. Bring it to others. Deal with it. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9. Listen, all of us are imperfect. To live the Christian life is to live a life of repentance. Be killing your sin or your sin will be killing you. Be killing your sin, or your sin will be killing you. What do you need to repent of today? What do you need to confess to the Lord? Let's deal with the root. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. And, and before we go, I just want to give you an opportunity to respond to God's Word and how His Spirit may be speaking to you. There may be some of you here this morning. I mean, maybe this is new to you, or maybe you've heard it a lot. But God has shown you today that you need Jesus as your Savior. That you're a sinner, that you're guilty, that you're deserving of damnation. And that's where we all are. I'm not like talking down to anybody. That's what I believe about myself. And I believe our hope is the grace of God through the cross of Christ. And if that's you, and you have the faith to believe that Jesus is God's Son who died for you and rose from the dead, and by the grace of God, you want to live for Him, you want to be forgiven, you want to go in a different direction in your life, you just call on His name right now. You can pray something like this. I mean... Put in your own words, just, just, dear Jesus, I need you. I'm a sinner. I'm guilty. I'm sorry for my sins. I ask you to forgive me. I believe you're the Son of God. I believe you died for me. I believe you rose from the dead. Right now, I receive you as my Savior. I confess you as my Lord. Jesus, take control of my life. You know, and if you just trusted Christ, I encourage you to talk to me, talk to Pastor Philip in the lobby when we're finished. Fill out the connection card or just let us know so we can help you take your next steps. We're doing baptisms in both services next Sunday. That's our first, that's your first step of obedience. Uh, after you get saved. You really want to grow spiritually, you got to take the first step. And so, you know, if you just became a Christian, we'd encourage you to confess that publicly. Or if you've already been a Christian, you've never taken that first step, take that first step of obedience to the Lord. Go public with your faith. Let us know that you'd like to do that. If you're a Christian, there's unconfessed sin in your life, your secret stuff, your stuff you're hiding. We ask the Lord to forgive you right now. Maybe it's something you need to talk to somebody and get help with. You know, maybe it's something you need to make right with other people. You know, sometimes repenting is talking confession to somebody else. Sometimes it's restitution. Sometimes we just got to bring something out in the open to get victory over it. You know, we're as sick as our secrets a lot of the time. I mean... Are there problems in your life that you've been trying to blame on a lot of other things? 
But if you're honest today, you've got to admit you're the problem. It's a problem of the heart. Would you do that? So God can change you and give you victory. Father, I pray, God, that you pour out your grace in our hearts. Lord, I ask just for the working of the Holy Spirit to draw us to Jesus, to cause us to rely on Him. Lord, give us the grace to repent. Pray that you'd save people. I pray, Lord, that you'd forgive and cleanse us. And God, that you would uh, help us to kill our sin, to walk in victory, so that we can be the people and live a, that you want us to be, live the life that you want us to live. Lord, be glorified by your work in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, thank you again for being here.